Hi, and welcome to season five of Business Book Talk. Hope you're going to enjoy this new season. I'm really excited about it. I'm sure you will really enjoy some of the books that we have planned. So let's get on with the show. Hey, everybody, it's Bob again, and I've got Stop Talking, Get It Done, The Leader's Guide to Bringing Vision and Action Together. I've got Taylor Nielsen on the line today. Taylor, thanks for being a sport and coming on the show. No problem, Bob. It's good to be here. So why did you think it was important to have a book about telling people to shut up? (laughs) Well, you know, it just, it it really came out of uh, my own journey of life and talking to people. You know, I've been, I've been on every continent of the world except for Antarctica and had all kinds of conversations. And, you know, I'd be chatting with someone and they tell me their dreams and they tell me this, this elaborate vision that they have. And, you know, I'd often think I'd, I'm just going to ask the next follow-up question, which I think is natural. And I'd say, well, well, what are you doing about it? And then I'd get blank stares and, and, and a comment of, well, you know, Tyler, I'm waiting for the stars to align or, you know, I'm waiting for my situation to be perfect that I can step out and do that. And, and I, you know, at times I just wanted to say, you know what, just don't talk about it. Just do it. Just, just head out there and just make it happen. Go make the stars align. Don't, don't wait for them. Just go do something. So that was really the the heartbeat of it. It's not just shut up, but it's just go do something. Well, you know, I, you know, when you say that, what are you doing about it? That I I know this amazing sales guy, and that was for him how he uh, qualified people in a social engagement. So he'd chat with people, blah blah blah, and then he'd find out what their pain point was, and then he says, "So what are you doing about it?" And if they started waffling on about a bunch of stuff, he'd just leave them. He said, "Okay, these guys are not ready to do anything about it." So for me to work with them. I'm wasting my time. And it's very, very true what you said. If if people are just waffling on and dreaming and, oh, one day I'll do this, and but they're just wasting their time. And a lot of times they're wasting everybody else's time around them because they're just floundering. That's right. So how should people, uh, you know, approach the book? I mean, is it a book that you can write, should read cover to cover? Can you jump around in it? What would you recommend? You know, my, my, my greatest desire in writing this is to write a book uh, like I like reading books. And, you know, I, I've uh, matured a little bit in my reading. And what I want to do when I read a book is grab what I want out of the book and then and then set it aside. So I might read, you know, chapter uh, 14, 15 and 16 and leave the rest of a book uh, aside. But my book was really designed, once you read the first three chapters and get that foundation of vision, values, and viewers, you can kind of pick and choose next chapter, this chapter, whatever chapter. And my book doesn't have to be read in order. If, if you read the first three chapters and then jump right to chapter 13, great. If you want to go, you know what, I, I got 15 minutes, I'm going to pick the, the shortest chapter here and then pick it up later. Great, you can do that with this book. There's no real necessity to read it in order and you can read as much or as little of it uh, as you really need after those first three chapters for you what was your aha moment you kind of discussed it a little bit when you were you know traveling around you were running to people and and they were saying oh i plan to do this and that and you had your epiphany but when you were putting the book together once you'd already had that when you're putting it together and you were lining up all your knowledge and your thoughts what was your aha moment where something that you already knew was true became a core understanding that went right down to bedrock? I think just seeing the power of what vision and a true vision can do in people, and even even in writing the book, uh, you know, I use the principle of vision, uh, set out my ideal destination, and then just start moving towards it and start uh, creating some momentum behind that. And 
I think the aha moment was even in my own journey. Once I, I implemented these principles, even in writing the book, I, I saw it finished. I saw it come to completion. I, I saw the goal realized. And I, I think when people get true clarity on what they're trying to achieve and then true clarity on their next simple step, uh, things become so much more simple. And uh, it doesn't necessarily mean it's easy, but when it's simple, we're far more likely to succeed. So for me, it was just the clarity and moving it forward. You know, I, I want to talk about uh, chapter 10, tasks, not time, because I think this is a hugely important thing that a lot of people aren't getting. Can you talk to that? Uh, sure. You know what? Like one of the things that uh, I even teach, and I think it's in this chapter, is, is Perfect Week. And I was working that with a, with a client this morning. Is just trying to get the tasks within your calendar and not just booking uh, booking times exclusively. But we, we do things, uh, time evaporates, time we can't stop, uh, time just keeps going. Um, but tasks we can fit in based on their importance. And I, I use the Stephen uh, Covey principle of uh, immediate and important and non-immediate, non-important. I use that quadrant with, with clients to really help them what tasks should be in the calendar. Another filter I use, uh, even for myself, as I go about my day, I ask myself the question, uh, is this a $100 an hour job or is this a $10 an hour job? And if it's a $10 an hour job, why am I doing it? And it's not based on my worth, but if a board of directors hired me to do what I do, they want the best value. They want me doing the $100 an hour jobs because that's what they're willing to pay me and that's the result they want. And so we we look at what tasks give you the greatest value and we put it into time, but we don't manage time, we manage our tasks. What about, you know, it's a very interesting point there because, you know, I, I know a lot of managers that are out there and because of the cutbacks and and basically the cash flow issues that everybody's got right now or has had for many many years um they're given these grandiose goals for the organization because they're upper management but they're given no money and so they're ending up doing these ten dollar an hour jobs which is incredibly frustrating how do you psychologically deal with that well, I, I help people realize that, that our week is built into sections and we want to create uh, highly uh, productive weeks. It, you know, when I say the $10, $100 an hour jobs, I, I don't ever mean for people to never do the $10 an hour jobs, but 20% of our week is the maximum we should be dedicating to those $10 an hour jobs. We all have them. They're simple one-offs. Uh, you know, a manager can look at that and go, you know, I can spend 10 minutes, complete that task, or I can spend 20 minutes trying to teach someone to do that task. So I'll just do it. Even though it's not my job, I'll just, I'll just get it done and we can move forward. Um, so I help people categorize when the $10 an hour job is, is truly worth $100 an hour. And so we look at uh, you know our work weeks as entrepreneurs, and if we're going to do a 40-hour work week, uh, 20% is in eight hours. Um, so we just find what are the $10 jobs that we can fit into that eight hours. And, you know, I tell my clients this rule, every yes is a no and every no is a yes. If you keep saying yes to $10 an hour jobs, it means you're saying no to $100 an hour jobs. That's where you should be is the $100 an hour. And you got to start saying yes to the right things. Um, 
I forget if it's Stephen Covey or John Maxwell, but they talk about that category four uh, is non-important and non-immediate. If you're doing that, you're doing the wrong thing. You should be delegating that. You should be passing that to either a subcontractor or or someone who works with you or for you. Um, just because you define something as a $10 an hour job for you doesn't mean it's a $10 an hour job for everyone. And so being able to find those and delegate them effectively and raise people up to do them effectively, that it's a hundred dollar an hour job for them. You know what? It, it, that's such a critical point where, uh, I remember when I was a lot younger and working with this incredibly talented guy and he would go to me, Bob, um, find out, uh, the cheapest place to get, uh, AAA batteries, uh, in town. And then he'd walk away and I'd say, okay. And then I would spend four or five hours and f- using the yellow page and calling these people up and doing a report and giving it to him and, and spending a ridiculous amount of time. Them looking at that, him picking up the phone in front of me and calling one person and getting a better price than everybody else. So he was just making a point. So, Bob, I, I get that you did this, yeah. but see how ineffective you are. <laughs> so please go back and do the jobs I'm requesting you to do. So that was a great way of teaching me that, yeah, you can ask because I want to do more in the company. You're showing that you want to do more. Really what he needed me to do was my job really, really well so he didn't have to think about it because a lot of the stuff that he could give to me would be an ineffective use of my time regardless if I was being paid a little above minimum wage. So how does a leader grow his group or teach his people when he delegates to them to be really, really efficient? Well, well, one of the things I, I talk about in delegation is is we don't just hand off and walk away. We don't we we delegate. We don't abdicate. And I and I talk about the five steps to delegation. And this is a a John C. Maxwell uh, concept. But the first step is is simple. And the first step is if I'm going to delegate something, the first step is I've got to do that task. I got to make sure I know how to do that task. So the first step is I do. Uh, and if I'm teaching someone, we'll call them uh, person B and we'll call me person A. If I've done it, if person A has done it, the next step is uh, person A does it while person B watches. Uh, the third step is person A and B do that task together. Uh, uh, fourth step is person B does that task and person A watches. And there's always a debriefing after, okay, here's what went well, here's, here's what we've got to grow from. The fifth step in delegation, we often skip over this step and we, we tend to skip over others as well, but we miss this one. Step five is person B can begin the process over again with a new person. Do I have the confidence that that person can teach this task the way I would? If I do, I'm, I'm fully, I have fully delegated that task. But if they're not ready to teach someone new, if you don't have the confidence, you need to spend more time with them. Maybe it's back to step three or step four, but spend the time that's needed that that person fully understands and fully comprehends how to take that task to the next level. It's about trust as well. Yeah. It's the ability to trust the people you're working with to understand that, yeah, they may do it a different way that you may not have done, but have they accomplished the task that you've given them relatively effectively? And, and I think a lot of managers have a really hard time looking at the way they did it and say, well, no, that's not the way I did it. Why didn't you do it this way? If it gets the right results, who cares? Exactly. And, and one of the things that uh, may, may go on my next book, and I don't have a timeline for when that one's going to be written, <laughs> but, but we talk about with our clients of how we measure our success, and we call those key success factors. And the process in which we take, we, I often call those code of best practices. And I say, uh, boss or manager, you can write those the first time. 
but let your employees or let your team members write them every other time that you go through this because they may have a better way to generate the result you're looking for. But we want to guide them with some recommendations to start because if they don't know where to start, they're not going to. So lay out a good start. But if you, if you say to them, if you can find a better way to do this, we want you to do that. Uh, we want you to generate results. We're going to delegate the process and the result. But if you can find a better process, our ears are open. We're listening. And so I go through with bosses all the time. Write your key success factors and let your team members write their code of best practices, how they're going to do that, how they're going to achieve that. And those aren't written in stone. They might find six months later they found a better way to do something even they wrote. Wonderful. Let's keep improving on our processes. Yeah, and I think it's a key point there. Keep improving on your processes. Not You don't write your processes and then it's done, written in stone. It's just like a business plan. You've got to go review it. You've got to go back and you've got to evolve it because if you're not evolving your processes, you're going to fall behind. For sure. Um, you know, it, it actually reminded me of a guy that um, he uses a lot of virtual assistants, usually in the Philippines. And because of that, he's he's basically put together uh, together a live wiki and the wiki is all about uh, exactly how to do everything from the beginning of the day all the way through so he's got physical people here but he's also got a bunch of virtual people and it's from how to how what direction the lock turns <laughs> all the way to like what the alarm number is and he's got them on different levels of, of uh, availability depending where where you are in the company. But literally, anybody in that company can call in sick and nothing changes in the company. So because of that, he's got a running rule. If you call him or any of the senior managers and they can go into the wiki and find the answer, if you do that three times in a row, you're fired. Yeah. You've got to have a consequence to drive people to go there first. Go to the instruction book, then ask the expert. Don't go to the expert and never go to the instruction book or you'll never learn. That's right. Let's get back to the fundamentals. We talked about it a little at the beginning, but I'd really like to dig down about vision, values, and views, the big three Vs. Let's define each one of those words and then go back and touch on them. For sure. And, and you know, when I'm doing this process with a client, I, I often start at vision. And vision to me is so important. And you know, Bob, we often hear these terms uh, interchanged. We hear, Tyler, uh, you know, my mission is this and my vision is this. And I've worked with organizations where I've looked at their vision and their mission statement and they were two phrases almost exactly the same, except one had a little bit of a different ending. And, I, and I'm thinking, guys, let's let's hone in this definition and let's let's be clear about it. And so here's how I've defined vision and mission in the book and why I emphasize vision. Uh, vision is all about your ideal destination. Where do I want to go as a business? Where do I want to go as an individual? What does it look like when I've arrived? Um, you know, we talk about in the book, going to LA is your vision. Uh, you know, if I'm going to go to Los Angeles, it's uh, I'm not real familiar with the territory, but I'd be pretty clear on when I'm there. Oh, there's the Hollywood sign over there. Oh, there's the beach over there. There's, there's some clear signs that I'm in Los Angeles. Um, mission would be the route in which you take to get there. So is it really relevant that I plan to take the I-5 all the way south from Vancouver to LA? It might be. But if the I-5 is closed, I'm not canceling my trip. And that's why I tell people, let's spend a lot of time on defining the vision we can work on mission, 
but mission will change. If your vision is clear, your mission may change depending on the environment that's around you. So we work real hard on defining vision, defining where, what is your true destination, where is it you want to go. I want vision statements uh, for companies that are short, memorable, they're potable. I go into more detail, of course, in the book, but I talk about a vision statement that evokes action into not only the speaker, but the listener. You know, we've we've heard great vision statements uh, that have been, um, for example, Bono's Amnesty International's uh, vision statement for their group is make poverty history. And when we hear that, we say, you know what, I want to be involved in that. I want to be a part of that. That's a vision statement that evokes a response. And, And I work with companies to create that for themselves because when the going gets tough, it's vision that carries us through. When we're stuck in the mundane of tasks, it's vision that carries us forward. So vision is real important uh, to me and, and the organizations I work in is, is bringing real clarity to that. Uh, we incorporate some of the concepts, uh, you know, Simon Sinek's start with why. Uh, I ask the why question. Um, Jim Collins' concept of the, the BHAG, big, hairy, audacious goal. We have that ingredient within vision of just to create something bigger than we may have the technology to do, but let's dream big in vision. Um, the second concept, uh, the values. Uh, these are core values. And why I do this, because if organizations don't know what they value or don't know what they stand for, you've heard the saying, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. And I want organizations to stand for something. And when we work with organizations to define values, we don't define aspirational values. So, you know, one day I'd like to behave this way. Uh, you know, clients come to me and say, Tyler, when, when I have a million dollars in the bank account, then I'll, be, I'll have integrity. I say, well, a million dollars won't change your integrity. You, should, you shouldn't set aspirational values. You should set them as these are our non-negotiable behaviors right now. We don't deviate from this. We don't debate this. This is who we are. And it's, it's non-negotiable. We will fire people over values. We won't necessarily fire people over mistakes if they repeat the same mistake. That's likely more rooted in a value, uh, but we don't fire over mistakes. We fire over values, um, but helping people set those. And then I often tell my clients, it's not the list of values that's important. That is, that is important, but also defining the how it's seen and why it's a value is of equal, if not greater importance, because if an employee doesn't know how to behave based on the value, they're not going to follow that value. They're, they're not going to understand it. I also work with companies to create value three to five values. We don't want a list of 17 to 20 because chances are those are good things. They're just not core values. So we hone the list down to three to five values and then really define them well so employees don't have any assumptions when it comes to values. Uh, the third V, viewers, target audience. Uh, who is your target audience? Who is it you're trying to attract? Who is it you're trying to go after? Who is it that's going to buy your product or service? And if we don't know that, we don't know how to speak to them or what to say to them. And and I get, get my clients to narrow that list down. And for many entrepreneurs, um, Bob, as you, you've experienced, they probably say the same things to you that they say to me. They say, Tyler, I, I don't want to narrow my list. I want to sell to everybody. 
And I say to them, you can't sell to everybody. Let's define who you can sell and let's sell lots to them. Uh, the narrower the list becomes, the more likely they're going to be successful at selling to that group. So we, we work on those three Vs as a, as a foundation for which we do everything else. And it becomes a filter for every decision that the business will make, vision, values, and viewers. Well, you know, it's interesting. We were talking about the, with the viewers and, and basically the t- your target demographic. And a lot of people stumble with this, well, I want to sell with every, to everybody, but it's it's really being able to have an under core understanding of what value your uh, product or service actually brings. What is the pain point that it's 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 fixing? You're right. It has to be a little bit more systematic, and it definitely has to be way more refined, because you got to go after the low hanging fruit, or you're never going to survive as a business. For you, what do you recommend? Uh, you know, in this book, it, it covers so much material. Uh, for a leader in the organization, where do you think, on average, they're weakest? Um, you know, sometimes leaders are are great at what they do, but um, they might struggle with motivating others or speaking the language of others. I, I met a lot of uh, people who are in high position, but they struggle with managing or leading the people directly under them because they... They say to me, Tyler, they're speaking Greek to me. I don't understand what they're talking about. I, I don't know how to motivate them. I don't, I don't know how to give them tasks and even a language they understand. And so I get into it in the book of, of the behavioral styles. And it, we, we've seen these in many forms. And it's in many books. And we've probably done a, a hundred tests each of all these behavioral styles. They're all the same. They're just labeled differently. But understanding who you are and who you're speaking to and and leveraging the understanding of who you're speaking to, to speak to them in such a way that they're they're more likely to understand what you're talking about. Um, um, the Myers Briggs and the the DISC assessment, and and I use the Lion, Beaver, Otter, Golden Retriever. Um, those those tests and those assessments can help you understand how your team members uh, understand behavior, how they relate to what you're asking them to do. Um, and, and it may also help you look at, well, I've got this specific task, who should I ask to do it? Um, and so you can, you can leverage those tools in such a way. Sometimes I think leaders just get there and they think, hey, you know what, I, I am, I'm the leader because I've been here the longest, so you should listen to me. The trouble is, is the people that are working for you don't care that you've been there the longest. <laughs> they want to know that the task fits them and helps you and the organization. So understanding that and also understanding the motivational languages. And I, and I wrote about the motivational languages uh, based on, I believe his name is Dr. Gary Chapman's uh, five love languages. And, and those work in the workplace too. Obviously they got to be workplace appropriate, but, but choosing to motivate your people the way that they need to be motivated, right? Uh, I've been an employee too, and I've had employers try to use fear to motivate me. Fear doesn't work for me. If if you want to threaten to fire me for everything I do wrong, I'm just going to walk away from the job because fear doesn't work for me. Um, so what does work for people? And if you're leveraging those tools effectively, you'll get so much more out of your people, so much more production that you'll your head will spin. It'll be great. But learning how to lead is the most important thing for leaders, not just learning how to manage or learning how to be a boss, learning how to lead. 
you know, when you're working in an organization, your younger days in that organization, you work up through it, and then one day, you're no longer one of the guys working with your buddies, you're the boss of those buddies because you become a manager. And that's, there was a great book called uh, From Bud to Boss. And that was about the psychological change. And that is a key point in your career that if you cannot transition there, that's it. You will always be uh, at that level or below. You'll never go to the next level because you just will be inefficient or you won't be happy with your job and you'll leave, you'll leave the job. So being conscious of those fundamental steps is critical for somebody that's uh, in C-suite or the owner of the organization to understand that not everybody that does really, really well at one job is going to be good at managing people. Let's talk a little bit about Chapter 9, uh, Pruning Principles. What are you talking about here? <laughs> well, I thought there wasn't enough about gardening, and, I, and <laughs> I, I don't have a green thumb. But, you know, one of the things that I noticed, uh, and I even mentioned it earlier, every yes is a no and every no is a yes. And, you know, with pruning, sometimes we have to cut things that are are living and growing. You know, I it's, it's spring here in Edmonton. Uh, some of my trees have some <laughs> have some leaves and some don't uh, but there will come a day this summer where I have to go and look and I have to cut off living branches so that other the the, the plant can draw the soil uh, the nutrients out of the soil to the the best places it needs right and I've got a I've got a shrub out in the front of my house where there's some dead branches and there's some living branches and I'm going to go cut off the dead things and I'm not going to think twice about it so how do we prune in our business we often look at what am I doing in this business that's not producing me any fruit that's not producing me any cash in my jeans that's like a dead branch I should cut that and spend no more time uh, in doing that um in, even in my own business, I used to do this thing that I'd have once a month, and I, I called it the leadership lunch. And it was a it was a networking event, it was an educational event, and I'd get people out. And you know what, Bob? It was making me a little bit of cash in my jeans. But what I was realizing is it's so much work, energy, and effort just to get thirty people out to this lunch that I'm going to make a hundred bucks from. So I cut that lunch and enabled me to do other things for networking and other time to go to clients and generating work. It was a live branch, but it wasn't producing me enough fruit. And because I cut it, I was able to get other things growing. Um, we need to do that in our business. Um, we, we look at things and, you know, we might say, well, you know what, 80% of my profit is coming from 20% of my product line. Does that mean I cut out 80% of my product line? No, but I might pour more energy into the 20% of the product line that's giving me 80% of my profits. And so we got to cut strategically. Um, but I put the principle of pruning in so people see that, you know what, cutting healthy branches isn't always a negative. But it can lead to positives. And I also put in the chapter, I believe, the concept of the 40 days of cuts. And why I chose 40 days is because it's a number. It, it has a beginning and it has an end. Um, and it's a little longer than a month. And 40 days almost puts you to that pain point. And, you know, I, I would do this every year. My wife and I would go through and we'd pick some time in the in the summer Generally, when the Stanley Cup playoffs are over, because, uh, you know, I can't give up too much uh, entertainment and sports <laughs> radio when that's on. But I, I would cut 40 days of sports radio and I would cut 40 days of entertainment and 40 days of watching TV and 40. And, 
you know what? I, I found that one, my brain was far more engaged and far more uh, in tune with, with new thoughts and new ideas. And, and I forced myself to read books and listen to podcasts and, but I wasn't doing anything for entertaining. And the reality was, is today I'm not in that 40 days. Do I watch TV today? Yeah, I'll probably watch some TV today. Did I listen to sports radio today? You bet. You know, I, I haven't heard enough that the Oilers are going to draft Connor McDavid. I need to keep <laughs> up to date on that. But there is a time where you just need to cut it and you say, I'm going to allow other growth. I'm going to allow other things to come in. And, and you know, I'm doing this with a client right now. Um, she's She's been with me four years. And every year she asks me about 40 days of cuts. And one year we, we did this 40 days of cuts and, and she said to me, Tyler, I don't know what, I don't know what I should give up. I, you know, I gave up YouTube last year. It was real fruitful. I haven't really gone back and the time's been great. And I'm just, you know, I don't know what to give up. And, and I challenged her. I said, why don't you try giving up fear and worry for the next 40 days? Just give that up for the next 40. Well, how can I do that? I, I'm, I'm worried about giving up worry. I said, just give it up and see what happens. And, and, you know, her husband called me the next week and he said, I'm so glad you, <laughs> you asked her to give up this, this fear and worry. We're not doing anything crazy, but she's not worrying about it anymore. And it's, she is so free from this, this, the, the shackles of, of fear and worry that she's trying things she never would have tried before. Um, she's not worrying about things that she would have spent hours worrying about. And she's so much more productive and fruitful in, in her business and in life and in doing these things. And, you know, she brings that up and, and, you know, she's not in the 40 days. She might worry about and she might be afraid of some things now, but she's reminded of the 40 days that she lived without it. So she always thinks twice about fear and worry today because of that. Um, You know, she's just doing things and she always looks for something in the 40 days that's unexpected. And it always comes within that time. So, uh, you know, I look at this as a discipline. It's not something I do the same thing every year. This year I gave up, uh, and it's been difficult, but I gave up sugar for 40 days and and carbs. And, and it was real fruitful and it was it was a challenge and a stretch. But, you know, I'm not asking people to do crazy things, things that make them insane. Don't don't start with coffee. You know, start with <laughs> something that is manageable, but it does give you it go, does give you some pain points uh, that you miss that and you can go back to it. But it, it brings so much good into you and so much good into the business that, you know, you may not think of it as a revenue producing activity, but it, it, it does produce revenue. It produces growth. Well, it's almost cathartic as well. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I want to dig down a little bit into this because I, I, I did make a thing is like list of uh, possible stuff and you kind of did a lot of things. But I think one of the things a person can do is <clears throat> spend a week listing off all the things that they do when they're not really working on their business, like checking Facebook, eating food, playing with the kids, and then you kind of put them in in two columns, one that are completely useless and one that is actually has some positive benefit but no benefit to my business. I'm going to talk about Chapter 5 in a, in a sec, Personal Beliefs. Uh, in that section, you've got uh, a reference to two economies. You've got a reference to uh, possibility. And then you've got a reference to responsibility and then the Sunday jerk. And I thought that was a nice segue from my last little uh, discussion. 
Yeah, um, you know, personal beliefs, um, and it even stems to personal policy. As I was talking with a client this morning about personal policies, personal policies are policies you create just for you. Uh, personal beliefs are beliefs that that I hold to be true. And I'm not going to force you, Bob, to hold these to be true, but these are beliefs that I hold to be true and that have worked in me. And I start the chapter out with even the belief in abundance. And, you know, why I choose to believe in abundance is because I don't want to choose to believe in scarcity, which would be the the opposite. Um, Abundance tells me that there's more than enough clients out there for me. Scarcity tells me my competition has all the clients and there's none left for me. So, you know, these, these things I just, I, I want to believe and I choose to believe. Um, two economies, and I'll brush on that briefly, but it, it goes down to people's mindset of money and, and why they're working. Um, I talk about the two economies and the first economy, Bob, you and I are, are very familiar in and most, most of your listeners will be familiar in. It's, it's the economy we measure in, in dollars and cents. Uh, I, I work for a client and they pay me in dollars and cents. Even though there's no pennies left in our economy, they still pay me in dollars and cents. Uh, the second economy is harder to measure, but it's it's what I call the currency of smiles and giggles. And, uh, you know, I talk about in, in two economies, if you're not working and it, it, it might not just be what you do for a living, but if you're not working in life towards building wealth in both economies, even if you have an overabundance of one, you'll still be, by my definition, you'll still be poor. Um, as we alluded to earlier, I've traveled all around the world and I've met people who have, what you and I would define as no money. They are poor, yet they are filled with that second economy. They have smiles and giggles and, and they are just celebrating life and they are, they're full of joy. And I look at that and I say, they are, they are on the road to being wealthy. If they could you know, pay their bills, they'd be, they'd be good and set. I've met people who are, by my definition, rich. They have money but they're miserable. They're not filled with joy. They're not filled with smiles and giggles and they have nothing in their life that brings them that. And, and I say to people, pursue both. Uh, if you're not pursuing both, you're, you're, you're going to run into trouble and you're going to find out you're, you're actually broke. Um, you know, in what I do, and I said this to my wife, uh, you know, early on in the business when I had one client and, you know, we were, <laughs> pinching pennies and rubbing dimes together to hope they'd hope they'd multiply I remember saying to her you know what if I could afford to do this for free I would if Safeway would take smiles and giggles I'd pay them in that in a heartbeat um I still can't afford to do it for free uh because one the clients don't get the same benefit when I don't charge them um but I feel like what I'm doing is paying me in both economies and I'm rich because of it uh so that's the two economies talk um the next thing you mentioned was possibility, just believing things are possible. You know, I often uh, will meet with a client and we'll, we'll talk about what went on in a week and what they did and what they didn't do. And then they'll sit and they'll say to me, Tyler, well, I can't do this. And I always want to say to them, don't tell me what's not possible. Tell me what is, because there's always a possibility. There's always something that you can do to make that happen. Um, my 11 my year old son was uh was seeing a personal trainer in training for hockey and he seems young but he was having fun jumping and and doing stuff at the gym and and he said something my son said something to the trainer and it set the trainer off and my son said I can't do that and the trainer said 
I want you to take the word can't and replace it with won't. Then I want you to go tell your coach you won't do something and see how much time he puts you on the ice. See how much ice time you get. Every time you say can't, you're really saying I won't. And so I want clients to see the possibility, not I can't, I won't, but I will and I can. And so looking at what is possible and the concept of the Sunday jerk, it it comes from um, a John Acuff uh, book. I believe it was John Acuff, but he he wrote a book about uh, quitting, uh, leaving your, your day job and pursuing your dream job. And he talked about the Sunday jerk and I see the Sunday jerk often it's a person that hates their job and you know that they hate their job because they become a jerk on Sunday they live their whole week for Friday afternoon at five because that's the weekend and they can enjoy their weekend but Sunday afternoon rolls around and they realize they got to go back to work on Monday and they just get down and they become a real jerk to deal with because they know they're dealing with Monday And what I want people to realize is there's something far greater than just doing a job. Um, You can even have a mundane job and fill and pay that second economy with other things. And so what I want people to realize is if, if you are that Sunday jerk, you can look at a couple possibilities. One, start your own business and be in control of your own destiny. Or do everything within your power outside of work to fill that second economy and work won't be so bad. You know, that's interesting, too, because if you look at it, the person that actually is griping about Monday on Sunday is giving up their Sunday for Monday. And it's like, you just, dude, forget about Monday. You get It's going to be exactly the same. There's nothing you can do about it. It's going to make you miserable, blah, blah, blah. Like you said, either quit it or deal with it, but don't waste your Sunday that's just ridiculous. That's taking resources and throwing them away. What you could be doing, and okay, this is reminds me of my kids, teenagers, and you know they're like they, you know, they love school. They do very, very well in school. They're motivated, and they, they, you know, I taught them to run school like a business. And they come home on Friday and say, "Ah, oh, great, that weekend," and they're already developing this stupid attitude. It's like, "Oh, I'm going to be lazy on Saturday and Sunday, do nothing, watch YouTube, sit in my bed." At least on Monday, they have a good attitude. They don't gripe about it on Sunday. But really, guys, why don't you fill your Saturday and Sunday with activities because it will feel like you've had a week off instead of no time off. And it's, you know, it's, a, it's a huge problem people have that they come home from work. Oh, I'm so burnt out. I'm going to sit my butt down in front of the TV. Don't do that. Go out there and exercise. Run around the block. Go to the gym. Work out for an hour. And you will feel exhausted when you're going there, but all the stress and negativity that is actually making you exhausted will be dissipated through your activity. And then when you come home, you won't feel like sitting in the in front of the TV. Or if you do, you'll feel like you've, you've actually got something accomplished and you'll actually have a much harder time watching two shows in a row. It'll be like, ah, eh, that's enough of that crap. I'm going to go cook with, you know, I'm going to cook dinner with the wife or something that's an activity, but actually, like you say, is moving uh, your your balance sheet to the more positive side instead of the escapism side, which is just a bad place to be. I want you to talk about uh, leading through adversity because I think this is a critical thing where a lot of people fail. Uh, the ability to, number one, recognize adversity. Number two, uh, deal with it because you can't run away from it. you got to face it and you can't hide from it. Yeah, you know what? There's... 
We are going to deal with tough times. Uh, you know, as much as we practice good principles of leadership and, uh, and, you know, good principles of leading through behavioral styles and motivational styles, there's going to be tough times and there's going to be tough people. But it's, it's what we do in those tough times and, and with tough people that define us. And, um, you know, you, you, there's all kinds of things you can do, but the greatest thing we can do is communicate with clarity and quickness, um, right? If you got a problem with someone, go to that person and have a conversation. Get to them face-to-face. You know what? Solving a problem through a text message or an email doesn't often work. Get in front of them. Uh, talk to them. Um, have a conversation. That conversation doesn't have to contain uh, your emotion and your passion, but your conversation should contain compassion. Um, it should contain, uh, I want to be heard and I want to hear you and have real skills in communication. Um, I've seen too many organizations fall apart because of a small problem that no one wanted to talk about, that no one wanted to get face to face about, that no one even wanted to get on the phone about. They just wanted to CC everyone in an email and hope that it would fix itself. Well, no, the, the more people you bring to a fight, it, it, it doesn't de-escalate the fight, right? Um, someone once said to me, Tyler, if you fight fire with fire, all you get is scorched earth. And, uh, you know, I don't see firefighters going out to put out a fire by starting other fires. So what are you going to do to put out this fire? What are you going to do to uh, calm this problem down? And, you know, adversity comes, problems come, you know, leaders especially need to recognize uh, if, if, if the mistake's on you, own it. You'll buy more credibility because everyone knows it's on you. And if you own that mistake and move forward from that mistake, you're going to buy more credibility than if you try to sweep it under the rug. And uh, sweeping that problem under the rug just creates a bigger problem later. So what I want to tell my clients is, is let's look at the problem. Let's face the problem head on. Let's have people meet with people and deal with the problem and try to take the emotion out of it. But just have an adult conversation and and deal with what's going on and bring it back to the issue at hand don't don't get off on rabbit trails let's bring it back to the issue at hand and uh, just talk it out folks uh don't don't try to win your debate by soliciting more support um i find too many people try to solve their problems by by soliciting support and that doesn't work either well it's 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 more of an offensive defensive attitude as well it's like if i'm aggressive and nasty about it i'm just going to make it too difficult for people to deal with and then the problem will go away and what they don't realize is that no you're just tagging yourself as a person that's uncooperative and hard to deal with and maybe we shouldn't have them involved in bigger projects so yeah it's it's always going to come back regardless how clever you think you're going to be what should people do today to start moving forward in their stop talking, get things done strategy? Well, you know, Bob, what I, what I tell people all the time is take the next simple step. To take the next simple step, we have to define what the next simple step is. But don't get too confused with step 17. Uh, don't get too burdened down by planning every step along the way. Uh, one thing I've realized is if you start moving, Momentum will carry you through those hurdles. Momentum will carry you through those roadblocks. Um, you just got to start moving. Um, 
you know, when my wife and I are going to Calgary on the weekend and we're driving there, the next simple step for us is to get in the car. Um, and when that time comes, we're going to get in the car. And then the next simple step after that is to put the car in reverse, uh, of course, shoulder check, <laughs> but, but back out of my driveway. And you know, the step of putting it in drive is real simple. I often don't even think about putting it in drive, but I do. Just get the next simple step in front of you and move it forward. Um, the greatest thing we can do for ourselves uh, to, to get us towards our end is to start. Um, just start moving. Start moving it forward. Look at that next simple step. Take that next simple step. And also give yourself a timeline. Um, you know, I, my wife and I are going to Calgary. If we don't get, we got to be there Thursday night. If we don't get in the car until Friday morning, we, <laughs> we've put ourselves behind. So we need a real timeline of when we're going to complete that. So Thursday night, we're getting in the car. And now it looks like, well, we got the kids baseball. And what are we going to do? Fine. We will get in the car. Thursday night by 10 p.m. Even if that means we get to Calgary by one, we'll get to Calgary because we got to be there for first thing in the morning. Yeah, at the end of the day, it's it's uh, beating those deadlines, and and sometimes it's like, well, if we've got to be in Calgary at such and such a time, and then some the universe throws a roadblock in front of you, you just plow through that roadblock, try and deal with it in Calgary, or arrive in Calgary, get out of the car, and go to the event, and you know, and and deal with it, and then sleep after the event. So it's, it, it's sometimes the universe does that. But if you're pushing forward and you've got momentum, you have a much, much higher chance of overcoming any problem that comes because you've got a head of steam going. I've been chatting with Tyler today and his book, Stop Talking, Get It Done, The Leader's Guide to Bringing Vision and Action Together. It was awesome chatting with you today. Thanks, Bob. It's been great to chat with you and meet you as well. And uh, I wish you all the best. And I would say to you, what's the next simple step? And make sure you take it with a good timeline. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that show. And do me a favor and tweet about it. Follow us on Facebook if you haven't done that already. We really appreciate it. See you next week.